you got a Bible, I would love it if you'd turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and put a marker in Psalm 51. And if you're really feeling feisty, put another marker in Psalm 32. We're going to get to those two chapters in the second half of the message. Uh, We're continuing our series this weekend entitled Friends, Family, and Foes with a conversation about somebody who's kind of been demonized and vilified an awful lot throughout history. We're going to talk about Bathsheba this weekend. The title of the message is a test called Bathsheba, but I really, more than that, I need you to understand the angle by which I'm going to be approaching Bathsheba. I'm not talking about the woman Bathsheba, all right? I'm actually talking about using Bathsheba because the story of David and Bathsheba is not about sex, it's about sin. And so as we talk about Bathsheba, I'm using Bathsheba to represent a sinful situation where many willful sins transpire, okay? That's, I'm not demonizing Bathsheba. And let me just say this, you know, much artwork historically has kind of portrayed Bathsheba as though she were a scandalous, dirty woman of the night. If, if there's an antagonist in the story of David and Bathsheba, it ain't Bathsheba, it is most certainly David. I'm not saying she's completely pure in everything. What I am saying is she is not rebuked the same way that David is, all right? So I'm not vilifying her at all. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about God, he actually mentions Bathsheba as one of several women in the genealogy of Jesus, all right? So today, we're gonna learn as much as we can about sinful situations where much or many willful sins are made, transpire, okay? Two questions we're gonna answer. First question has four answers. Second question has six answers, okay? So we got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I wanna get you out to lunch at least before three, but I certainly wanna get you home in time for the Cowboys 49ers game today because I know many of you are rooting for my team to be utterly destroyed. Don't worry, I'm still gonna preach the stars down as best as I can because the Lord deserves that even though you don't, okay? <laughs> Do appreciate all of your texts and emails and DMs about my team being absolutely lambasted by your team two weeks ago, so thank you and I hate all of you. <laughs> Question number one. If we're really gonna learn everything we can from a Bathsheba, we have to answer this question. How does a Bathsheba even happen? Four answers. Here's the first one. First, by not being where you should be. Now, before I jump into this first subpoint, let me just calibrate your thinking as it relates to this message. The goal of this message is to be more like a chapter in the book of Proverbs, not a chapter in the book of Genesis. So I'm not telling uh, this robust story about David and Bathsheba. I'm actually approaching it like a chapter in Proverbs. And the first chapter says, if you do everything that this book says, you're going to live a long and happy life. And it's nuts and bolts. Just a lot of this, 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 and this. I'm going to try and give you 10 things, all right? And the first one is, you have to understand where Bathsheba, a sinful situation, begins. It starts by not being where you should be. If you're in 2 Samuel 11, look in verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Notice, normally go out to war. David was supposed to be at war. Now, 
Some scholars argue about the why behind not, uh, David not going to war. Some scholars say, possibly by this point, David's mighty men had already had the talk with him. Hey, you can no longer go out to fight with us because we will not risk the light of Israel being snuffed out. It's possible that that's why David stayed home. But here's what I would say. Even if David was no longer fighting on the front line, he should have still been with his people because his army was not just his army or his subjects. Many of these men were his friends. And for whatever reason, David made a choice not to be where he was supposed to be. Why is it so dangerous to not be where I'm supposed to be? Because when you aren't where you should be, it's amazing how often you end up somewhere you shouldn't be. One of temptation's favorite places to find me is somewhere I'm not supposed to be. Whereas the safest place in life is the center of God's will. Off the path of God's will is the easiest place to concoct a plan God does not approve of. And any plan God does not approve of will always end up producing fruit God never wanted you to taste. The sin of Bathsheba started with David making a conscious decision not to be where he was supposed to be. This is how sin starts. Getting off the path of God's will for your life is never, ever, ever going to lead to anything good in your life. Second answer to the question, how does a Bathsheba happen? By allowing isolation. Keep going in verse one. They, Joab and the Israelite army, destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David, notice, one single solitary name, and they is how this half of the verse begins. His they went there, but he alone chose to stay here. It's called isolation. When you remove yourself from everybody else. Listen to me. I think this is one of the reasons why during the COVID season on the earth, one of the things Satan was most trying to do was isolate everybody. And here's why. Because isolation creates space for iniquity. I want you to think just for a minute. What, what do you think David was doing on the balcony? We're about to see in the next verse, David's out on the balcony of the palace looking out over the whole city and that's when he sees Bathsheba. What is it you think David might have been doing? I personally think it's possible he might have been processing some really deep things. It doesn't say he was looking at the beautiful view. He was looking out over the city as though he were pondering or processing something very deep. I don't know what he might have been processing if he was processing, but if I think about it, I wonder if he might have been processing as a human something like this. Wow. My mighty men, for the first time, actually told me they don't see me as the warrior I used to be. That hurts. I don't know what he was processing, but my opinion is he was processing something deep. And that's how he ends up stepping into a very deep hole. The deepest feelings I have need to be processed with those I have the deepest trust in. Why? Because unprocessed feelings typically lead to undesired sin. 
There were some things going on deep down in David that I believe led to him justifying the choices we're about to see him make. Alone is the easiest place to believe the enemy's lie. Some of us just say, wow, I just need to be alone. Yeah, sometimes, not all the time. If you find yourself saying, I just need to be alone all the time, let me just kind of let you know why you're running from something. And part of what you're running from is probably the truth. That's why you're keeping people at bay, people you trust, because you're afraid they'll tell you the truth. And so you've isolated yourself. Listen, I will tell you from experience, it can be a dangerous thing to process very deep feelings all by yourself. I am the easiest to convince a lie, to buy the lie of the enemy when I'm all by myself trying to process some really deep things all by myself, without God, without a counselor, without my trusted friends. And here David is by himself, isolated from the people God had placed in his life. One of the mistakes David made that led to Bathsheba was letting them go and not going with them. Here's the third answer to the question. How does Bathsheba happen? By looking for it. Look in verse two. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Okay, question. How do you notice she's not just gorgeous, but she's unusually gorgeous? It's with a long look. Here he is looking out over the city, and he notices Bathsheba. It didn't go like this. He didn't see her bathing and go like this. I think it went something like this. He's looking out over the city. <laughs> Let's talk about this for a sec, because I get asked this from time to time, typically with men who are battling lust. Preston, I've heard people say the first look is free. Okay, I hate that phrase. I hate it. Here's why. Because that could be used as justification for somebody to jump online, view something they shouldn't look at really quickly, and just get off and go, it was just first look. No, no, no. No, I don't say it like that, the first look is free. Here's what I say. An accidental look is never sin. A lingering look is sin. Let me try and illustrate this. A couple years ago, I was in San Francisco uh, in an Uber on the way to, to speak somewhere, and I'm in the back seat uh, on my phone, not paying attention to what's going on, and the driver says, oh, you know you live in San Francisco when? I don't even know what we're talking about because I'm not paying attention. So I lift up my head, and as we're going through the intersection, it was huge, on my side of the vehicle, not his, there was a group of around a dozen protesters who were jaybird naked. Not a thing. So I look up, I'm my side of the car, they are right there on the corner. And I go, whoop. 
I'm, listen, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm trying to illustrate something, okay? An accidental look isn't sin. Here is sin. And I don't mean with my literal phone, I mean with the phone of my soul. Click, 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 click. Ooh, she's the pretty one. Click, 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 click. That's him. And that's what David did. He didn't accidentally look. Once he saw her, he kept his eyes on her. Here's one of the things I love, because you see all, and I don't have enough time to really do this justice, but here's part of what I love. I believe we see God's grace and love all throughout every step David takes. Here's the way it's been taught that, that she was bathing. Yes, she was bathing, but we get details later in the story of what she was actually most likely doing. Scripture says she had just finished her period and she was wrapping up the purification process of seven days post-period. This unusually beautiful woman is on the roof, not trying to get the king's attention. She is in purity, purifying herself post-period. While David, in impurity, is looking upon her, even though she was in purity. I think it was the Lord going, that's the purification process. She's not up there trying to get your attention. Look away. I think God was trying to pursue David the whole time, but you know how it is when we set our minds on sin, we give God the Heisman. Bathsheba happens because you're looking for it. The imagination kicks in when given a few seconds to fire up. So don't look for a few seconds. A few seconds isn't just a few seconds. A few seconds is giving the engine time to fire up and it goes from first gear to fifth gear almost immediately. Bathsheba doesn't just happen, you have to go looking for it. What you're looking at shows what you're looking for, and what you're looking for shows what you have a lack of. I want you just to imagine two different scenarios. Scenario number one, what if David would have invited God onto the balcony as he was looking in a lingering manner at Bathsheba as she was bathing? What do you think it would have been like if David would have said, hey God, come on down here while he was doing this? Probably many of you think, well, if, if David would have invited God, God would have stormed out in the balcony and go, what are you looking at, you sicko? You're disgusting. I think many of us think that's what God would do. That's not what I think God would do. I think if David would have invited God on the balcony, it might have gone something like this. David, what are you looking for? I don't think God would have asked, what are you looking at? Because he knew. I think he would have tried to help David discern what he was looking for. David, this can't be about sex because you have a gorgeous wife right outside the door. You're not looking for sex. Do you even know what you're looking for, David? 
have you been convinced a little bit too much all these years as king that you were always in control and the minute your mighty men told you you weren't allowed to go fight with them anymore, it's the first time you fell out of control? Are you looking to find a subservient woman who will be subject to you so you feel in control? First question God asks recorded in scripture is what? Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking a locational question. God isn't a therapist. He's the one who created and connected all of our wires. And I think this is what he would have said to David if David would have invited him in to the conversation as he was processing on the balcony. Scenario number two, how would it have gone if David would have invited Satan onto the balcony as he is taking a lingering look and admiring and lusting over beautiful Bathsheba. What do you think Satan would have done? I think Satan would have walked up and been like, ha, king, you know what you need? Okay, note to self, anytime you ever hear a voice call you king or queen, it's never God, because there's only one king. Yeah, Holmes. He will lie to your face and make you think it's the ultimate truth. King, you've had a stressful run. You know what you need? That. That's how Satan talks. It's been a lot. You're carrying a lot. You know what you need to do? You need to anesthetize with that beautiful woman right there. You're the king. She has to do whatever you say. An entirely different conversation in comparison to what God might have said. You don't just stumble into a Bathsheba. I'm trying to help you understand Bathsheba only happens because you're looking for it. And one of the ways to not look for it is if you ever catch yourself, look and then want to look again, start digging around with the Lord and with trusted friends going, what am I looking for as I jump into the DMs of this woman who just privately messaged me and it's a little bit on the line saying something about my look? I was about to type, what, what's going on in me? Preston, I don't, I, don't, I don't know a lot of pastors who talk like this. Yeah, I think if we'd be more honest about what we're trying to learn through, we wouldn't have so many failures. I'll tell you, I didn't say this in the other services. I will tell you this is something I'm trying to learn real time right now. What's happening on social media, and I believe God's asked me to step in as a big brother into a space and almost like a Solomon, just give any wisdom that God's given me to help my brothers and sisters in their walk with Christ. So I'm unapologetically stepping in, I've stepped into this space, but things have kind of taken off in the last eight months and I'm getting inundated with private messages. And I started to notice there's a certain type, two thirds of the people who, for whatever reason, follow me on Instagram are females. So I talk with Holly, I talk with Brooke. I immediately say, hey, I think we need to start maybe in the bio saying this account is monitored by multiple people because I'm starting to get some messages and we need to be careful with this. Now, I don't want to go so far and go, I will never talk to women. Here's why. Most likely, when Jesus had the people, the leaders of the day, religious leaders of the day, bring the woman caught in the act of adultery, most likely she was naked when they brought her. Jesus didn't go looking for her. They brought her to him, and they caught her in the act, the sexual act 
of an adulterous affair. I want to be able to learn how to love on anyone, anywhere, at any time. But one of the ways, one of the only ways I believe we can be trusted by God is if our boundaries are his, not ours. You don't stumble into a Bathsheba. You go looking for it. I'm trying to bring you into a conversation that I believe is a healthy one so that we don't stumble into, on purpose, a sinful situation with many sins. Here's the fourth thing. I got I to pick it up a little bit. How does Bathsheba happen? By scripting it. By scripting it. The more you want something God won't give you, the more you have to scheme to steal it. Look in verses three and four. David sent someone to find out who this woman bathing on the roof was. And he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Okay, David already knew who this was. This was Ahithophel's granddaughter. Ahithophel was his favorite counselor. No wonder when David's son tried to steal the kingdom, Ahithophel moved his uh, loyalty from David to David's son, most likely because he was still ticked off about what David did with his granddaughter. David knew who she was. Verse four, then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. This actually encourages me very much because I, I grew up kind of thinking in my line of work, if a pastor had a moral failure, it was just something that happened instantaneously. And so I would kind of live in fear. It's like, oh, be careful, be careful. No, no, no. Here's what I've learned over the years. The path to Bathsheba is meticulous, not instantaneous. Every step is a chance to stop. The majority of sin is not ignorantly accidental. The majority of sin is intentionally incremental. It's intentional. It's not just a quick fall. There are many steps of sin that lead to a great fall. Let me tell you the rest of the story before we jump to question number two. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Bathsheba goes home. She sends a message. When she finds out she's pregnant, it's King David. I'm pregnant. David goes into scheming mode to cover his sin. First step, David says, okay, what, what do I do with Uriah? I got it. I'll, I'll send a message. I'll bring Uriah off the battlefield. He'll come home. He'll, he'll want to sleep with his wife Bathsheba. Then when everyone finds out she's pregnant, we can point at that and say, see, it was Uriah. Uriah, being a man of integrity, says to the king, the ark of the Lord is out there and so are the Lord's warriors. I will not allow myself to experience a benefit they don't have access to. That's integrity. And so Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps at the palace gate with the men protecting the king's palace. The next morning, David gets word, Uriah didn't go home. <sighs> I got it. I'll get him drunk. Notice how conniving you have to be the longer you try and cover up your sin. I'll get him drunk. That's what I'll do. David gets your eye drunk. He thinks, drunk, he'll go home. That'll change his integrity. What happens? 
Uriah doesn't go home. He goes to the palace gate again and spends the night with the men entrusted to protecting the king in his palace. Here's one of the things I love about this story. An inebriated Uriah had more integrity than an anointed David. And I personally believe this was another moment where God was trying to go, do you not see this, David? This is who you are. Yes, you've made some mistakes, but you don't have to go further and make this next move. I believe with all of my heart, God was trying to petition him to stop him. God doesn't take a, a passive approach as we head closer and closer to destructive sin. All along the way, the spirit of the living God is saying, Preston, don't go further. And he uses things and people around us to send the message. Here was Uriah, a man of integrity. Even drunk, he did the right thing. And that still didn't get David's attention. So David sent him back to war. He said, what do I do now? I got it. I'll send a message to Joab. Pull the front line back. Everyone except Uriah. And he'll be killed in battle. And no one will ever know this happened. And so Uriah is murdered. It did not start with sex. It started with a couple of bad choices that led to more bad choices. And before David fully realized what he was doing, he was plotting a murder. And that brings us to question number two. What do you do with a Bathsheba after the fact? Remember, not a, a, a woman, not a person. What do you do with a sinful situation where many willful sins transpired? What do you do with a Bathsheba after the fact? Six things. We've got to breeze through these things. Here's the first thing. You've got to recognize that what you did is wrong. Psalm 51, if you put a marker there, let's read verse three. David says, God, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. I can't get the image out of it, out of my head. It haunts me. I know what I did was wrong. You know what the opposite of recognizing your sin is? Pretending it never happened. I know this, this might seem elementary to you. I've spent a lot of years in the sign of work. And I bump into a lot of walls in situations like this. And we will go round and round and they will say, what I did wasn't wrong. I believe what I did was right. Here's why I fight. It's not so they, they feel wrong or that they're bad. Here's why I will wrestle and wrestle as long as they allow me to wrestle. Because you can't be intimate with God and be in disagreement over sin. God's looking at sin going, this is wrong. Preston, it is not good. And we cannot be intimate unless we agree on this fact. See, what do we do? The further we get away from it and the less we talk about it, the more we convince ourselves, oh, see, if God had a real problem with it, he'd have said something by now. No, no, no. He's like that, and I'm being sarcastic, that extremely annoying parent who knows you've done wrong 
and you know he saw you do wrong, but you're pretending like it didn't happen, hoping you're going to get away with it. But he knows. And that's why step one is I must recognize what I did was wrong. Second step, and I added this last night, I think we need to be repulsed. Repulsed by what it created. I don't just mean repulsed by the sin. I don't think it would have helped if David was repulsed by sex. That's not the point. I think we need to become repulsed by what our sin creates. And what the scriptures say, my sin creates. Distance between me and God. <laughs> Psalm 97, there's an awesome moment where King David says, I'll personalize it for me. I want you to personalize it. Preston, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Preston, here's what I learned navigating my escapade with Bathsheba. I was lightly tolerating something I should have hated. And it led to despicable things, Preston. And distance between me and the one I love. Preston, listen to me. You must hate evil. Why is that such wisdom? Well, think about it. We keep the most distance between us and what we are most repulsed by. Anybody hate spiders? Yeah, I hear some, come on, Jesus. Yeah, okay. You go home today and a brown, I'm not speaking this, all right. A brown recluse spider crawls down the wall of your house and you see it. Instantly realize it's a brown recluse. For those of you, <laughs> for those of you who hate spiders, what's move one? Yeah, yeah, that scream run out the room, right? A couple of us would grab a shoe or something and smash it, you know? I don't know if that's the best move because then the eggs go everywhere. Now you got a real problem on your hands. Preston, why'd you have to go there? I'm just trying to give you wisdom. This is the book of Proverbs. Do not, do not kill the spider crawling down your wall, for if you do, you will create a thousand more. I was just trying to think how would Solomon have said that? But what would you do? Many of you would run out the room. Why? To the extent that you are repulsed by something is the extent to which you will create distance between it and you. This is why David says, Preston, don't have a, a marginal perspective of evil. You need to hate it. That way, you will be more inclined to keep a far distance between you and it. That's Psalm 97. We gotta be repulsed by what our sin creates. Here's the third thing. We gotta reveal it to the Lord. We gotta reveal it. That's confession. Listen to me. God will not cover what you refuse to uncover. Thus we confess our sins, not just to one another, but to him. Psalm 32 verse five. Oh, remember, by the way, Psalm 32, verse 3, David goes on record and he says, again, I love to personalize as though it's a conversation between the writer and me. Preston, let me try and describe to you what my life was like when I made the choice to cover my sin up and not confess it to the Lord. Verse 3, he says, my body wasted away 
The message translation says it like this. My bones began to deteriorate into dust. Preston, it ate me from the inside out. Then listen to what he says in verse five when he reveals that. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, God, and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. Watch God's response. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Think about this. And this is especially for those of you who are carrying concealed sin from your past because you're afraid of how God will respond. This is what I think David's saying. He's saying, God, I thought if there was one sin you would not forgive, it would be murder. And I carried the weight, not just of my sin, but of concealing my sin. And it nearly killed me. And then finally, because I couldn't handle it anymore, I confessed it to you. And when I thought you would kill me because I killed, that wasn't the response I saw. The response I received was, I forgive you. I wonder how many people in a room this size are carrying concealed sins from their past because of fear of how God might respond. Let me just say what I think King David is trying to teach us. The weight of the punishment of my sin is far less weighty than the weight of concealing my sin and keeping the distance between me and God. Gotta reveal it, gotta confess it. And I will tell you, it's like throwing up. I don't wanna get too graphic. But when I was growing up, I was like the kid, you know, some people, when they feel nauseous, they just can walk to the bathroom and let it fly. I'm the person who's like, I will not let you take me down. So I will stay up all night, literally doing ab exercises in my diaphragm to keep it down. But you know what I learned? I was miserable for hours where if I just would have let it happen, I'd have been sick for a moment and then much healthy, healthier, much faster. But I wallowed in sickness thinking I could defeat it myself. This is the foolishness of concealing sin. We must reveal it to him. That brings us to the next part of the equation. We must repent by turning away for good. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. God, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer you one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, which is what we've been describing here. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. Okay, what is a repentant heart? A repentant heart is not just a heart that apologizes. God, will you forgive me? That's not a repentant heart. A repentant heart causes a person's feet to turn and move in the opposite direction for good. David repented. Preston, how do you know? Did he ever have another Bathsheba? He did not. Was he perfect? He was not. Did he repeat this mistake? He did not. He repented. One of my favorite definitions 
for the word repent is, is a word picture attached to the word repent that I learned in college at GCU many years ago. It's the picture that basically denotes this phrase, to burn up so as to never revisit again. That's what it means to turn. You don't just walk away. You start a bonfire and you burn it all up so that if you ever tried to go back to it, the ashes scatter to the ends of the earth and you couldn't find it if you wanted to do it again. That's repentance. We must turn. That brings us to the last two. And these are really the burden I felt for the entire message. And it's very, for a very specific person. Fifth thing, we must receive. After we repent, we must receive God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Watch this next part. Whose sin is actually put out of sight. Satan loves to keep, keep a whiteboard of all your wrongdoing around at all times. So he can go, whoop, whoop, remember you did that, you did that, you did that. Here's what David says, but here's what I've learned about God. God burns the whiteboard. And he, he removes it so far out of my sight, I couldn't find it if I tried. As though he burned it. I'll never find it again. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. Here's the picture I felt the Lord give of me for this last part of the message. It was like Christmas Day, and God walks in carrying many gifts for his children in the room. And he goes to each child, and the children are screaming with excitement, and they're ripping open the gifts, and it's a wonderfully beautiful morning. Some of you are like, God celebrates Christmas? Don't get semantic on me, okay? Then there's this one little girl. And she won't look the father in the eyes. And this little girl is sitting on the ground and in her lap is a very large 35 gallon garbage bag with the smelliest, clearly most disgusting objects in the room. Everyone can smell it, but the rest of the children are so excited about their gifts that they've forgotten about the stench of this little girl's stuff. The father begins to speak with the little girl and she won't even look him in the eyes. And the father says, sweetheart, there are some gifts I would like to give you today. And she looking down, won't look him in the eyes. She says, I don't deserve your gifts. They do, but they didn't do what I did. All I have to show for my life is this garbage. Because that's what I've done in my life. And the father says, I've been desiring this day since before the beginning of time. I have some gifts I would like to give you. And it's even better than that, I would like to swap what you have for what I've come to give. And she says, you're not listening to me. I don't deserve that. The father, not in frustration or exasperation, puts his hands on the little girl's face and holds up 
her chin so she has to look him in the eyes and she's trying not to and he keeps bringing her face right before his and he says I need your heart to hear me what you did is not who you are but daddy this trash is disgusting why would you ever want this I didn't say I wanted the trash because it's valuable. I want the trash so I could do something with it. And the primary thing I want to do by removing it is to make more room for all of the gifts I've desired to bestow upon you, not just for the rest of your life, but for the rest of eternity. But you've got to receive what I'm trying to give you. God wants to forgive you But if you keep defining yourself by what you did in your past, you're not able to hear the name he's calling you. Here's what I love about Bathsheba. We act like what her name means is Bathsheba, the woman who nefariously slept with the king of Israel. That's not what Bathsheba means. Bathsheba means daughter of the oath. But I can't hear the name he calls me if I keep defining myself by what I did in my past. And so he holds you by the face and says, because of what my son did for you, you can boldly look me in the eyes. But you have to receive it. And that leads to the last step in this equation of dealing with the Bathsheba after the fact. You have to remember how God talks. You have to remember how he talks. If you ever walk into a room and you feel like everyone's looking at you going, that's the girl who did that in the past. That's not how God talks. That's how his enemy talks. He loves to walk into the room and say, let me make an introduction. This is the little girl who did this, 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 and this. She's disgusting and you should not want to be around her. This is not how God talks. God walks in with Bathsheba and says, listen, This is the mother of Solomon, the only man I entrusted the building of my temple unto. She's one of several women that can be counted on a hand mentioned in my son's genealogy. This is Bathsheba. She belongs to me. You got to remember how God talks. What good is the name God calls you if you keep trying to remind him of the label you've given yourself because the enemy stuck it on you? Let's apply it to David. I think one of my favorite things about this story, God knows the end from the beginning. And at the beginning of David's story in scripture, God says, I'm appointing a new king, a man after my own heart. And he's talking about David. God knew, because he knows the end from the beginning, what David would one day do with Bathsheba. And God does not say, let me tell you, you shouldn't follow this guy. Because not only is he going to sleep with a woman that isn't his wife, he's going to murder her husband. God doesn't say that. He says, let me define my little boy for you before any of this story ever gets written. This is mine. And he is a man after my own heart. Is he perfect? No but he's chasing my heart. 
I refuse to agree with a liar when he talks about me. And I did it for years. And many of you have too. And I'm sick of it. You've got to remember how your daddy talks. And long after the Bathsheba situation happens, God is not saying to Bathsheba, you remember that time when she done the right thing, but she did the wrong thing? Don't ever forget. I don't want you to forget that. So I'm going to remind you every day. No, he doesn't do that. Here's my perspective. God says, Bathsheba, listen, was it right? No. Am I the God who redeems? Yes. So while you will lose the first child, the fruit of this sin, I'm going to give you a Solomon. They named him Jedediah, which means friend of God. And he says, essentially to Bathsheba, there's only one woman on the earth I can entrust this little boy to. But God, I'm the girl who did this. Bathsheba, don't. Because if you keep telling me what you did, you will not be able to do what I desire you to do. And so I trust you with Solomon, the king who will come after his father, David. And I will tell David, he is not allowed to build my temple, but I will allow and anoint Solomon to do it in his place. This is our God, and this is his grace. 